0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arberry describes the mission this way, this college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers on the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Kenneth L. Woodward. Ken Woodward, he's a scholar as well as one of the nation's most respected journalists. He's been in First Things before. Uh, He served as Newsweek's religion editor for nearly 40 years, uh, reporting from around the world, contributing. He did more than 700 articles, including nearly 100 cover stories. Think of that. Uh, Newsweek, uh, 100 cover stories on on religion. I don't know if we've seen that in Newsweek or Time or U.S. News or anything else for for quite a while. His work has appeared in, in many magazines, newspapers, and other scholarly journals. He's the author of a couple of other books, Making Saints, How the Catholic Church Determines Who Becomes a Saint, Who Doesn't, and Why, and The Book of Miracles, The Meaning of the Miracle Stories in Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. A couple of years ago, he came out with a memoir entitled Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. I was reading it again the other day, and it was so good. It had so many vivid portraits and important stories from the last 50 years that I thought we would come back to it today. So welcome, welcome, Ken. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You know, one thing that stood out when I did look back at this was your generic title getting religion and that when we look at the chapter headings you 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 talk about religion you don't you don't talk about you, you don't name christianity you don't single out catholic protestant or jew although it's it's of course throughout the book was that was that deliberate on your part Ken
1: yeah, it was deliberate because I I, I make an argument that the, how you get religion uh, determines the kind of religion you get. We often see that with, uh, with converts. Uh, they come into a religion, they come in in a different way than people who were, say, cradle Protestants or cradle Catholics. You get religion from your environment. So I, I created some categories that I thought would help Establish a correlation between what was going on in society, in culture and politics, and how that influenced religion and vice versa. Let me give you an example. People my age grew up and and uh, you grew up in neighborhoods that were mostly Catholic might, or, or there were towns that were mostly Methodist or in the South where they got more Baptist than they got people. Uh, in the South. And so in a certain sense, the community raised you. Everybody, not everybody, just enough people, you know, Jews, um, certainly. Yeah. OK. So I think that when you see declines in in uh, Protestant uh, affiliation and and in uh, what's happening, the same drainage is taking place among Catholics, uh, people overlook the fact that and if they'll look back to the 50s, say, they weren't just raised by their parents. They were raised by extended uh, family, kin, and they were raised by, uh, by neighborhoods. Um, and they were raised in, in some cases by small towns. Um, uh, my father was a small town Protestant, uh, and, uh, and that shaped his, uh, his perception. So, uh, what's going on around you, um, uh, certainly uh, shapes. Oh, let me give you another example. Um, people talk about the turn to, to, to Asian religions, to Buddhism, and Hinduism, or at least vague forms of those. Um, well they wouldn't have happened if they hadn't changed the immigration policies on people from Asia when what I think was 1967 or 68. So that brought over the the teachers, the Tukus and so forth. Um, and then you had the, the drug culture. Um, and there are a lot of good stories, uh, about, uh, about people um, starting out on drugs and then seeing a high without drugs, and so turning to forms of meditation, and you still see a lot of that today. So there's a
0: profound um, relationship. You can't separate religion off from the rest of what's going on in society. First, uh, a quick historical context, not about religion, but about publication. You, You joined Newsweek in 1964. And you mentioned the, quote, cultural authority of Time and Newsweek back then. But, you know, I don't think people who are under, oh, say, 45 know what you mean by that. They don't know what Time and Newsweek represented in, in 1970. How how influential and significant were they back then?
1: Well, we, we created real, um, if you will, readers that were an intentional community they waited for their they took newsweek rather than time and there were they had reasons for it a lot of times they were wrong the perception was that time was republican and newsweek was democrat and there was some ex- extent to that liberal conservative but that was the accident of history and that it changed after the 60s probably um look there were three television stations they had more authority this is before cable now everything's dispersed um Look at the competition that that that, that uh, the news magazine had, but when they put somebody on the cover, um, let's say I'm not religious, but I, I did I did the life of Jesus backward and forwards because there was so much New Testament scholarship to talk about. Some of it's schlock, of course, and um, and uh, so you put it in front of people. That's there that week. That's my news week. That's my time, um, and I'll read it. Um, secondly, religion was um I almost think it was the third great awakening that took place in the middle of the second half of the 20th century, and there I was. Uh, there was started uh, with uh, Vatican II. um I was hired in part because I was Catholic and had gone to Notre Dame, and they they were uh, music was getting beat uh, by time in the coverage of the council for a variety of reasons. We only had two people there, and they had about five. Uh, but they didn't have anybody to interpret it. And so I lucked. I walked in from uh, Madison Avenue and said, do you, uh, uh, I'd like a job. And they said, uh, I looked at the resume, and they said, oh, you must know about uh, Catholicism. I said, I do. Uh, and we'll make you religious. You're hired! Day. More or less. My, yeah, my kids hear that, and, it, and they go crazy. It was, it was like when I got out of high school, I said, well, I guess I go to college. Uh, well, you're going to go to Notre Dame because your brother's there. Okay. I went, it was that casual. No tests. No nothing. <laughs> yeah, those are different
0: times. Well, well. Now, the big question was: Eric Parsegian coach at Notre Dame when you were there?
1: No. No, that was later. That was later. Yeah. We had uh, we had uh, Terry. Uh, 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 the other Leahy Leahy was forced out because he was killing himself, and Terry Brennan came in and he didn't do very well. And if you want to talk football, and I don't want to talk about it much. But um, we had the Heisman oh. profile, that Paul Harning, and we were <clears throat> he were two and eight. Paul lived uh, the floor above me, and he dated my uh, my future wife once or twice, uh, so she claims. Uh, I say, look at him now, and look at me. See what you what you got. <laughs>
0: there you go. Okay. Well, now you, you you do say that the America of your childhood really religion was just the air you breathed. Ah, uh, in that in the 1950s, you noted more churches were built than in any other decade in in American history. Now, people read that today and they think, "My goodness, wait, wait a minute, um, that's not the air we breathe anymore. Things have changed." Were there certain critical moments in your career when you realized that the the decline the decline of of the church or the decay of faith was? really happening in a broad historical process of, of secularization and it was more than just, oh, a, a dip here and there. Au contraire. I mean, in a certain way, if, if, if
1: you have a burning element and it bursts open into lots of um, you know cinders and so on, it was a deeply religious time, but it was not, a, a, if you will, a good time for traditional religions. And so, I mean, there was a time in the in the '60s and in the '70s, uh, the kids turned to religion, but they didn't any religion but my, that of my parents and my grandparents. Um, so they uh, uh, and they wanted to be spiritual, and I understand that to some extent. And then that got very gooey. What really happened, I think, if you start with the with the with the Protestants, um, mainline Protestant uh, Protestantism, and there's a, a, a sense in which um, the loss of standards but through the loss of liberal Protestantism is a loss. Um, What I witnessed, because I was a civil rights reporter before I went, just before I went to Newsweek out in Omaha, Nebraska, and um, there were a lot of um, really heroic people there, but the the clergy and the lady Protestant uh, in Protestantism uh, split to some extent on that. I talk about movement religion, which is the opposite of established religion. If you remember, movement, say the anti-war movement or any other movement, um, that's really a different kind of religion, even though. There are movements going back to Exodus. Movement religion is the opposite because it doesn't care where you came from. It doesn't care what denomination you were. It's, are you a brother or sister in the movement? The movement determines everything. That really happened. And and uh, so the one was pitted against the other. And then I think really to tell you the truth, if you take uh, Catholics and, pe- and people like them that had a certain uh, social distance from the society and certain markers, plain sociological markers. And once those uh, evaporated, and once the ecumenical Protestant movement became successful, uh, labels didn't matter much. And in a sense, that's a good thing to overcome those. But sociologically, you need to say we invade to some extent, especially to the larger society. And um, increasingly, the marks of separation Fish on Friday, for example, was a dumb thing to get rid of by the Catholics because that was one marker of difference. Um, now, the young people, to jump ahead to today, they're really raised by the culture around them and not so much by the churches.
0: You know, you mentioned the civil rights movement. You were in Selma?
1: No, I wrote, I wrote, about, I wrote about Selma. We had, we had a wonderful group of people there. Somebody had to stay home and write the article. And let me tell you about that. I'm sitting there wondering, what, what need can I have? Um, and I thought about this. And here's what I came up with, and I, you'll see why I'm talking about it. If you remember, King had called for help to have the, the, the northern clergy come down and march with them. It, um, it was a strategic move, and so the call went out and i the lead sentence i you know it by heart like the lame the lured to like the lame to lureds they came priests ministers nuns rabbis uh, several thousand in all sensing somehow that god was stirring the waters in selma alabama so my story was they had to dip themselves in the water they felt they had to uh, rather than the reverse you see what i mean um, they needed that uh, for their own uh, sort of uh, cleansing, and um, so we had—I had a Jewish uh, senior editor and a uh, very lightly Episcopalian uh, editor in chief—and I thought, is this too Catholic a lead? Uh, how many people know about about Lourdes? Well, they both understood it, and it went through. But anyhow that was a very powerful thing. And then we lived with a succession of movements and, um, the, and, uh, the movements are, are very religious for people like Gloria Steinem, who doesn't have any religion. And, and, uh, but if we Dan and, and so forth, I mean, they told you what was good, what was bad, who the enemy was, who the good people were, uh, how the oppression works and so on down the line. And, um, well, has to recognize that kind of thing. Um, the same way that oh I've forgotten his name recognized communism as a religion. You remember that book, uh, Darkness at Noon, Kessler.
0: You know, you mentioned at one point speaking of of the nuns uh, on page seventy eight. You talk about the Christmas cover of the magazine in nineteen sixty seven. It was in the nuns, right?
1: Yeah, the, the the new nuns. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were they were breaking out after Vatican II. I mean, it it, it was legitimate. They they had been told. Uh, at Vatican II to, to, to re-examine their uh, their their founder's charism and uh, you know, interpret it anew. Um, there was a lot of bitterness and complaint about being you know um, the lackeys of the bishops and so on. Um, and uh, and so they were going to get out and get into the world. A lot of them did, and a lot of them just plain old left, like the, like Sister Carita on the cover of our. Uh, our cover there, and uh, you know they—they, they, um, yeah, that was a—that was a uh, difficult time. What I stick with is the religious imagination. Early in the one of my first book I ever wrote was, grandparents, grandchildren, the vital connection, and uh, so it was about the family and uh, and the uh, deep limitations of the um, nuclear family because. For most of humankind, we've been raised by, you know, clans, tribes, extended kin, so that the aberration is the nuclear family. Mom, pop, and the kids. Today, it's just mom and the kids and pop someplace else. So it's even worse. Um, let me move along on that. I, I talked about growing up uh, Catholic, and I said, you know, you, 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 as a child, you felt like you were living at the center of concentric circles of belonging, um, there were the Catholics that you knew uh, at school and, and at church. There were the ones you saw when you traveled and you went to church. It was still my church, and these were still our people. And then there were all the Catholics that you know had come before and all the Catholics that would come after. And then there were those uh, looking down. Uh, there were those uh, saints in heaven whose names we knew and looking down. Uh, on us, as if from high front porches. Well, that's a that's a crowded world of belonging. And at the end of, of of the book, I talk about the opposite of it, and you would know this well from teaching the distance from institutions and the, um, uh, if you will, the utilitarian um, manipulation of, for, for my own uh, for my own uh, you know degree and all of that. You didn't belong to these places. The town I lived in, um, it belonged to us as teenagers as much as we belonged to it. Uh, that sense of, of, of shared uh, commonality is, uh, is uh, something that you know, David Brooks is, uh, is always talking about. Um, yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really missing in their, in their lives, and it, it's unfortunate.
0: You know, it's remarkable, Ken, when you look at the college students, how, how, how much they feel they're on your, they're on your own. You're 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 competing. Those those kids sitting next to you are not part of the same community for all the talk that we hear about that. They're competing with one another and they know, you know, at least in the achievement world, uh, there are only so many spots in medical school and law school. They're only they're only so only only one person can, can take that internship that, that that twenty twenty high-powered kids are applying for. And they they generally don't go over to the chapel to sit and have their time of reflection. They, they go over to the clinic for, for counseling. That's, that's where a lot of them are, are now.
1: I, I know it's, it's, um, I, I always compare it to a kind of, you know, a, a herd of young people on a, on a uh, reserved land for them. It's, it's uh, there's not a lot of interaction with adults, including teachers. There are some places which are very different. And, uh, but I, I, I want to mention something else: the idea of correlation. For example, there were uh, in the seventies and eighties there were 360 new or what I want to say resuscitated cults of all well, religious cults. Uh, that's Jay Gordon Melton. 360, according to Jay Gordon Melton, who was the maven on this. I think he overestimated it, it. If it was even half of that, it was a lot. But he, he, he counts 360. And I look at these and I connect these up. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, what was it in the '60s, wrote his report on the on the Negro family, as it was called, and it was leaked to the press uh, by Bill Moyers. And uh, he said, uh, you know, there's there's um, social pathology here. Yes, it's not it's not um, it's related to slavery and Jim Crow, but it's uh, distinct from it too. Um, Talking about divorce, children. Uh, with no father and and so on down the line. Um, And then 20 years later, well, in the 80s, certainly, in the 90s, uh, he comes out with another report defining deviance down, meaning that once the white population had the same data uh, showing on the decline in the family, it was okay. It was alternative Families, If you remember, and different kinds of marriages and all that sort of thing. So it was okay for whites, but it wasn't for blacks, and blacks were that much worse after 20 years. Well, the, what about the kids from these families, including, you know, upper middle class. Princeton uh, freshmen and so on. Where do you think the cults got their people? They got them, the the rise of the cults, which were usually mom and pop, Dr. Moon and and, uh, Mrs. Moon, or they were matriarchies or patriarchies. They were substitute families. The the rise of the cults occurred because the cults themselves became um, uh, substitutes for the families that were broken. And you could see it in the use of the father who's going to take care of everything, or the mother or the matriarch. Uh, we're going to have a clan out somewhere. And sometimes whole families joined. So there was a correlation again between what was going on in society and the rise of these cults. And they pretty much disappeared after, well, by, by the end, by the turn of the uh, millennium. Um, then I think um, dealing with. Politics. Uh, It's one thing to talk about uh, the rise of the religious right, which was actually, as I argued, created by two Catholics and a Jew. They're the ones that went out and recruited Falwell and said, here's a a movement we're going to call the moral majority and you're going to run it because um, those uh, fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals who voted for Carter uh, really should belong to us. And the rest is history. The Democrats are more difficult, um, and my argument there is if you don't understand um, American Methodism and the role that it's played in society, you won't recognize that the Democratic Party, beginning with a Methodist named George McGovern, really was sort of the Methodist ethos in politics. and um, one of the discoveries I made in 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 uh, writing that chapter is I went up the street to um um uh, in evanston um and uh and, and got a copy of the nineteen seventy two book of resolutions put out by the Methodists every four years during election years they meet and it's like a um uh, you know it's a scramble they've got uh, it's like a political convention with or it used to be different sides different subgroups uh, fighting for planks and so on anyhow they put out a book. And that guides their social thought and action and um, of, by their other by boards and all the other institutions for the next four years. And then they start all over again. Well, in 72, they had a very famous book of resolutions. I went back and looked at it. Then I looked at the Democratic platform for that year that came out about three months later, two and a half months, almost word for word in many cases, almost word for word. Now, I. I build on that coincidence to suggest, again, a correlation here. Uh, it, it wasn't formal. They didn't steal from it. Um, and it, it came from an interview I did in the White House in 19, let's see, uh, Bill Clinton was, uh, when did he come in? 82. So in 1984. They...
0: No, 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 can't Ken. And I, and I wanted to bring up your interview with Hillary Clinton. No, Bill Clinton's elected in 92. Yeah, he gets elected and he, he talks
1: about a new covenant. I'm saying, you know, he was the kind of guy that carried his Bible to church and went to church by himself as a kid. And he and he never met a pew he couldn't sit in. He loved black music, uh, church music, and so on. And he was sort of saturated in a way. And so I said, well, that's interesting. I'd like to interview him. Well, the White House didn't want anything to do with me. Um, they were perfectly happy to, you know, court. Uh, the editor of the Christian Century say, and stuff like that, but they didn't want me there. Well, finally, it, uh, uh, it turns out that it's going to look bad in 19, uh, midterm elections, 1994. So they gave me Hillary and I tell this story. I mean, it leads off the whole section on the Democrat
0: and, uh,
1: and religion. Um, and I go in and, uh, uh, she's very nervous. We're in the map room. She tells me, uh, Can you turn off your tape recorders? I had two because I was on a very close deadline. And we talked, and then I interviewed her, and then uh, I discovered I never turned the damn things back on again. And uh, (laughs) I'm stuck. So the White House taping system that brought Nixon down saved my butt, I can tell you. So I had the transcription from them. Um, But during the course of this, we, we did a lot of work on this. We talked to um, Reverend Jones, her, her, um, her what do they call it? high school sort of pastor in um, in suburban Chicago, and he said uh, in the course of the interview, uh, "We Methodists are, uh, know what's good for you," and he was smiling. And I thought, "Oh my God, that's it! That is exactly it! That's the connection." Between um, you know, Methodism as an ethos and the ethos of the Democratic Party since McGovern, they know what's good for you, and so that's what
0: I do in that chapter. But but there's one other thing I want to add because at the end of your interview with the First Lady, she actually answered a question when when you asked her what would you do. What was the question? What would you do if you left politics? And her answer was something that she gave to you. But she said that goes off the record. But you're 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 putting it back on. You're putting it back on now. How did she? What was your question and how did she answer it? Well, my qu- my question. I I looked around the room and I I said, look, I'd
1: never been in the map room before. I'd never been, you know, and I was the one that should have been nervous, and yet she was. So I said, look, you're not. You're going to live in this place maybe if you're lucky you know for um, eight years maybe only four all right because it didn't it didn't look good and by the way that they lost both houses that for the first time in 40 years in that midterm election that was the ginrich revolution so i said you're yeah, not going to living here forever uh, do you ever think about becoming a a, a methodist minister and she says i think about it all the time and then she glanced over at her um, uh, press secretary who shook her head and said you can't use it and I, I was because that would have been the lead, obviously, and it would have been picked up everywhere. And I think the press secretary knew that. But uh, she was serious about that. And she was a very serious Methodist. I mean, and she kept that book of resolutions up in her bedroom, she told me, and she consulted it. And it was perfectly obvious. So uh, and um, uh, and I so we thought about that. What did she did? Well, she went into politics instead. Um, but she was a lay minister. I mean, to the extent that they have them. Uh, she spoke at a lot of places. She, she was Methodist.
0: She could trace her family almost back to Wesley. You, you know, all the cover stories that you did were for a magazine that you say was not that the, edited in the leadership by people who were particularly devout or even, I mean, they weren't, they weren't irreligious, but they weren't all that knowledgeable about even broadly Christianity in America. How did you get so many covers on the magazine? And the second question would be, you say that your religion stories got more response than all the other back of the book stories combined. The book reviews, the culture, the film, everything else combined didn't add up to the religion response. Well,
1: that's true. I mean, a lot of it was folk, because Vatican II. So there were the changes were superficial, but they were not superficial to the people who sat in church and had to do English instead of Latin. I happen to be a big fan of of the Latin liturgy, um, not the political way it's used now, but the way it was. And uh, you know, the changes were noted. They were they were like, no, what do you mean, no more meat on Friday? What do you mean? People felt guilty eating it. You know, you you. They um, those markers were destroyed. So I always say that the editors wanted to know um, in religion, they wanted stories about Catholics, number one. Number two, they wanted stories about Catholics. Number three, they wanted stories about Catholics. Four, they wanted uh, evangelicals when they came along, and five, everybody else. Um, they were totally fascinated. It was changed. In 1970, I put Billy Graham on the cover, uh, and that was a, a riff on uh, Bella's civil religion. He was a a representative of civil religion was sort of my argument. And uh, we also did a thing that uh, um, what was the cover story on Catholics? And we were the first ones, the first ones to commission a poll of what Catholics thought of their church. Uh, I think the cover line was something like what U.S. Catholics think of their church. And uh, already then the majority wanted ordaining women and other kinds of stuff like that. Uh, They did. They were strong on opposing abortion, however. Uh, And then there was the Birth Control Commission. So part of it was the the Catholics were such a good story because so many things were changing there. I finally did a story on Protestants with Robert McAfee Brown on the cover, misspelled his middle name. And uh, uh, to say, all right, uh, the rock of Rome is moving. What about you guys? What's happening to you? That, I have to tell you, except for a Billy Graham cover, uh, was a lot, that was the only time we put uh, mainline Protestantism on the cover of Newsweek because even those who, people at Newsweek who were mainline Protestants didn't think it was interesting enough. And um, that's what happened. And then denominations uh, ident- identities, I found, tended to disappear. So you didn't do denominations anymore. I tried to do Missouri's, uh, the breakup of Missouri Synod Lutherans and they said, we don't care about Lutherans in Missouri. They didn't know what it was. <laughs> they
0: didn't know how to find out. But, but, but the, rise of the, the rise of the religious right, now that was a story.
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, we, uh, that's a funny story. We, we, we put uh, Born Again on the cover uh, and talked about the political significance. But that was in 76. That had to do with Carter. And the interesting thing is that uh, people like Chuck Colson, I knew him. He came into my office, you know he filled the whole uh, d- uh, doorway. He was a big guy, and uh, you know I worked for Nixon in the White House, and was a tough guy, and he had just come out of prison and started the prison fellowship and he came in and he said, "You know what?" He said, "This is God answering Time magazine because it was ten years to the year that they had done Is God dead and seeing Born Again" on the cover of Newsweek." they felt was God's answer to, boy, you know, so that was short lived. Well, that goes back to what you said about the influence of news magazines. Um, we just did a two years ago, just did, did a whole symposium at the on that cover story and what was going on at that time.
0: Let, let me tell our listeners now, the book again is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. So this time, Ken, thank you for joining us. You bet. My
1: pleasure.